This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, I'm Emma Young. I'm talking to Sam on the Right Way Podcast. Hello there, everyone in digital land, and thank you so much for joining me uh, on the Right Way Podcast program with me. It is your host, Samuel Elliott. This is the first podcast of 2022, so marking the year, uh, starting off right, I would say. I'm starting off right in many respects. Uh, I feel like my year has gotten off to a good start with a great new job. Uh, I'm refreshed. I've had a good break. Uh, I'm keen to get back and talk to cool writers about their craft. And in that regard, uh, I have spoken to, just spoken to the lovely Emma Young regarding her book, The Last Bookshop. Emma Young is a journalist and former bookseller uh, and writer. And I talked to her about The Last Bookshop. The Last Bookshop, as its title would suggest, is about the last bastion of a bookshop uh, book fiend, uh, fictional bookshop, but uh, very uh, heavily inspired by lots of people and lots of places of bookshops that Emma worked for during her time as a bookseller. Uh, set within Hay Street, which uh, I'm not familiar with with Perth, but I've been told that it's a it's a real street, albeit uh, fictionalised for the purposes of Emma's narrative. But yes, it's about uh, follows Kate, who is the uh, the owner and proprietor of the the last bookshop, uh, struggling to kind of uh, make ends meet with the sort of hiking of rent that's happening, and it's pretty pretty real life sort of uh, dilemma that face or crises that a lot of Small businesses, uh, not just bookshops. Uh, bookshops, in this particular case, is emblematic of many are small businesses that face these sort of um, just unsustainable uh, rent, ever-increasing rental pricing. Uh, so, yeah, so it follows Kate's uh, quest to try and keep her keep her doors open of the last bookshop, of Bookfiend, I should say. And yeah, so please everyone give a big digital round of applause to Emma Young discussing with me her novel, The Last Bookshop. Emma Young, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going today? You're welcome, and I'm really good, thank you. It's so nice to catch up with you. I know, and we were talking just before because it has been it has been a it has been a hot minute since uh, since we first started talking. It's been like what something in the region of six months? Was it six months? Something like that or more. We've just both had so much on and we've both, yeah, I've been travelling around the countryside and you've been chopping and changing in your life too. So, yeah, but we finally got here. That's It's so good. It's so good. When two people want something to happen, it will happen. And, uh, yes, so I'm so happy to finally get the opportunity to talk to you. Now, normally, and I'm pretty sure you've heard a couple episodes of the podcast. You probably know how it sort of goes most of the time. I don't know where people get their ideas from when they start. So the question I always like to ask is, you know, where did, where did the idea come from? But I think that you going by being a bookseller for, for, a, for, a, for a number of years, I was wondering if maybe that was where the idea sort of uh, stemmed from that obviously became the novel. What, what do you reckon? What, what did the, where did the idea stem from? I guess anyone who's ever worked in customer service, has thought to themselves at some point this this stuff would make a book um, and has wanted to write down all those weird interactions that they have um, just for, for posterity. And so it, it began as that, you know, I had years of book selling um, behind me and there's something about bookshop customers that make them just even that little bit 
weirder than your mm. average retail customer, if that's possible. Um, and weirder and more interesting and lovable sometimes as well. Um, so there was that part of it. And, but for years, you know, I had this wanting to write a bookshop novel, but there needed to be something more, I guess, a creative idea for a story usually combines a few things, which, you know, make some kind of alchemical spark and you go, oh, there's my story. So I guess for, for me, that was, I read an article in the monthly magazine uh, about a librarian service that did visits to the folks at, um, you know, who were in aged care. And it was just the story of a librarian who had got to know these older people and what interested them and what their knowledge bases were. And she had gotten to know them in a way that, you know, meant that she knew that they would be interested in this new military history book or whatever. And so she got to know a side of these people that was otherwise really hidden from the world. And I found that really touching and being someone who always connects with people through what they like to read as my kind of go-to conversation anyway, something about that really struck a chord in me. And I thought if my bookseller can have a service like this where she goes and and enters people's homes and picks books for them and provides that service and that friendship, then that's that's what I want my story to be about. And I guess the third element of it was that I had worked in all these bookshops in the Perth CBD that eventually had to, as the city grew and changed, mm. their rents would rise, they would have to move, um, sometimes in some cases again and again. And I was working as a journalist after bookshops as well and I, was, I became increasingly aware that this was something that happened across the CBD, not just to bookshops, that businesses would struggle in um, the CBD, they would have to face um you know takeovers and and pushing by bigger more homogenous businesses that had to that could pay higher rents um sometimes chains and luxury brands and so i became aware that the city is full of these push-pull forces mm. um that end up in these kind of homogenized cities where you have long cbd streets and all the shops are the same they're the same shops that you see on every day every cbd street um, you know, across the world. And so I became aware of all those forces as well. So I guess it turned into a story that wasn't just a funny bookshop story, but it was also a story about a girl who connects to older people in this special way. And it's also about a girl who's at the mercy of these forces um, in retail and in cities that are so much bigger than her and what she does when it's that's pitted against your personal dream. That's a very long answer to your question. There's so much to unpack in that question. So... First and foremost, is history a real place? Is that a, is that a real? I'm not a, I'm not a ye old Perth local. Is that a, is that a real place? Yeah, it's one of the main malls in and and streets in the Perth CBD. Um, right. So you know, it might be like Adelaide's Brundle Mall or um, uh, Sydney's like Pitt Street or yes. something like that. Yeah. Um, so it is. So I have fictionalised Hay Street a little bit in terms of what shops are where and mm. um, that kind of thing, but. Uh, yeah, that, that's a real place. And it is the location of a couple of bookshops that I have worked at, both of which have now had to move, interestingly enough. So, yeah, the bookshop is not, is, is all itself a mishmash, but there's a lot of lived experience in there. Yeah, right. So, so with the bookshops that you, that you did work at, were they like independent sort of brick and mortar bookshops that subsequently kind of got pushed out by the, the, the rent hikes and stuff like that? 
Yeah, I worked at a couple of different ones in the CBD. So I worked at Boffins, which is a very well-known um, specialist and technical bookshop, um, an independent bookshop run by two beautiful men um, who have been in business for well, over 30 years, I believe. And they still exist, but they had to, I, I don't I don't want to speculate on the reasons for that, but they were, um, they had to move from their spot in Hay Street at one stage and now they're on a different street in the city. Um, I also worked at Elizabeth's Secondhand Bookshop, which you obviously have branches of in the East as well. I worked for Elizabeth's for many years and they have also had numerous different locations in the CBD and they just, you know, have to move with sort of, not regularity, but they've certainly moved three or four times since I worked there, which is 15 years ago. So, yeah, I worked for a couple I didn't, I didn't know that Elizabeth was a chain. Well, this is this is news to me. I, I did not know that. Yeah, she Elizabeth actually lives in Fremantle um, in Western Australia. Oh, she's a real person. She's alive. Yeah, she's a real person. Down, okay. um, yeah, so she opened her first bookshop in Fremantle in WA um, decades ago, mm. and then she expanded throughout. Um, she's probably got about five locations in Perth now, and then a few over east as well. So, yeah, a little, little homegrown empire. There we go. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's a, I was today years old when I learned that. But um, the way which you kind of describe book theme, I really like because book theme is book ended by, I think it's Gucci on one side and Prada on the other side. And I think that the, the, even the choice of the, the businesses that, that you've put there, like this kind of high-end sort of fashion, designer fashion outlets is a very good sort of uh, symbol, I guess, for, for this, this sort of place that you mentioned where, they have not, um, not limitless, but they have much more sort of a uh, financial largesse to be able to do, to be able to, to pay for exorbitant sort of rent hikes and kind of ensure that that kind of behavior goes on, I guess, and just kind of forces out the, the independent bookshops as they're representative of so many different small businesses. I think it's mentioned that like an old chemist was where Gucci or Prada was and they got forced out and then kind of towards the, without spoiling anything, what sort of happens on it's not the it's like sort of the climax but the receiving of like the flurry of emails from independent businesses that Kate receives kind of talking about similar sort of situations it becomes very emblematic I feel of of sort of small businesses there's one figure that you, that you quoted or that Kate mentions and it was 60 percent 60 percent of small businesses kind of have a tendency to close within three years or something is, 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 does that sound Oh, I think it might have been something like 30%. I'd have to go back to my research, okay. but it's quite a few, or maybe it was rest, restaurants particularly um, okay. have a very um, high value rate, um, but it, it is quite a lot. It's a high figure. Mm. I can't remember the figure, but it's, yeah, it's quite substantial. What do you think the book, book theme is to, is to the community there, Emma? Like, because it's, 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 to me, it's, I don't know if it's by virtue of being an independent bookshop, uh, or it's it's just a business that's been there, and you know, obviously, there's just such a personable, lovely person that's uh, in charge of it. What do you think it is to the community, though? And I'm like, there's this sort of endless sort of procession of uh, eccentric characters that are regulars. Like, is it Mystic? Is it Cowper? Is it? How do you pronounce that? Yeah. Am <laughs> I yeah. pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. No, it's just one of those those surnames where I look at it and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I'm not 100 sure. But tell me, what do you what do you think it is about the, um, book feed in particular that, that resonates with the community and becomes such a not? It's almost like a watering hole type situation of of the savannah of the of the Perth CBD. What, what do you reckon it is about that? Particular <laughs> I like that the watering hole. Um, 
I guess any small business to some extent, you know, the proprietor will get to know their customers and it will become part of the community, especially if it's, you know, something that provides a service. And a bookshop is really a crossover, I think, between a retailer and a service. Mm. And that's where it can set these deep roots into the community that it has. And I know a lot of examples um, from here in Perth and it would be the same any indie bookshop um, in any city will be able to relate to that. It's it's something very special about a bookshop in particular that means you're kind of translating the concerns and the zeitgeist of generations and, and the knowledge of what people need to know right now. You're responsible for curating that in a way and presenting mm-hmm. it to people in a way that they find attractive and inspiring and giving them a place where they can go and graze for ideas if you want. And I know that bookshop owners take that really seriously and find a lot of joy in it and customers find a lot of joy in it too. And so there's that lovely connection that they can, there's just no connection like recommending someone a book and then Mm -hmm. knowing that they'll love it because you know who they are. Um, there's a real joy in that and that's what I think a bookshop is all about and there are bookshops here in Perth that take it so far like um, there's a woman who runs Beaufort Street Books in Mount Lawley which is a very um, lovely inner ring city suburb who runs numerous book clubs um, including book clubs for children book clubs for parents who can't get out at night so it's like seven o'clock with a glass of wine and they do it on zoom Um, she runs um, like sausage sizzles and lets people out the front of her bookshop, you know, like Bunnings, but local charities do a sausage sizzle out the front of her bookshop and they can, you know, use it as a fundraiser. Um, And she observed, for example, that people were really drawn to what used to be called self-help, but it's now become something that's far beyond self-help, this genre of books. So she's created like a wellness section right at the front of her store and she's found that people are gravitating more and more to that in these troubled times. So it, it, it goes far beyond retailing, I think. Mm. And, you know, there's another example of Rabble Books in Maylands here, another kind of hip inner city suburb, um, where they've made it their business to be a safe place for people um, from diverse backgrounds, um, for LGBTIQ plus people, and they've got book clubs for that. They make a real um, effort to represent diversity in their book selection. And they run, you know, kind of safe space groups and things for people. And so I think that's a beautiful community mission to have. Um, so, yeah, all of these ways they connect with communities and they become this really important um, space of ideas exchange. I really like the way that you put that with like curating the zeitgeist of the times because that's, really well put and it's true i feel like it, it is it is beyond and the, i think you mentioned something about between the service providing a, a service as well as businesses kind of like the, the juggling of the two or the marrying of the two and i certainly agree with that as well because i think that there's something so special and you're right like there's something particularly about books and particularly about fellow readers and recommending a title and getting a big kick out of them um knowing that they're going to enjoy it even just by virtue of the, the titles that you listed um many a title listed throughout throughout the book and i found so so many i think there's actually like 87 or something my editor counted it oh really well so many (laughs) of them reasons best known to herself but i think it was 87 (laughs) so many of them that you mentioned in that 87 were like oh like like max with james elroy i'm like 
my man, we would have some good conversations because I absolutely love James Elroy. I love do James you? Elroy. Do, do you love yeah. James Elroy? Have you, seen, have you read Widespread Panic? No, I haven't. His I'm new so one. behind. His new one. So it's not a tome. It's um, and, and it's like a standalone. It's uh, I don't know. I, like, do you know his writing process? I'm getting a little bit off track. Or I swear I'll get back on track after this. But do you know his writing process? Do you know that he writes like like five? He write like 500 pages of research before he even starts writing his novels and stuff like that. Like that guy is crazy. I don't think I'd want to interview him. He kind of scares me. I love him, but I don't think I'd want to interview him. Have you seen him? I would, yeah. I'd be way too scared to interview James O'Roy. Yeah. But even so, so like the titles that you mentioned there and you mentioned Clive Barker and I'm like, Oh, Clive Barker. Like I love <laughs> Clive Barker. Like love Clive Barker. But it was the- just a way for me to nerd out and talk about all the books I love. <laughs> I know, and that was it's so good because then you can do it under the pretext of like being informative and you know informing the rest of the story. When in actuality, you just be like, I love this person. Let's just mention them and stuff like that. Yeah, but, but yeah. Even just by virtue of that, you know, yeah, because like I get like an endorphin rush when I like have a title that's mentioned. I'm like, oh yes, this person they get me. So it's something so special about books, I guess. That's it's just beyond like there's there's something you could go into. You could go into you get your morning coffee and you can form connections like that. But when it comes to books themselves, because I guess. I don't want to say intellectual because it's just so snobby, but like in terms of just the connection that you have with something is just so special and sort of ineffable. And it's like, it's not, it's not something that can really be kind of translated, I guess, to any other sort of service. What do you reckon? Yeah, you're so right. And I think it's because the act of writing a book is, is a leap of faith in communication itself. And that's mm. what a writer writing a book is. It's, it's wanting to express what they think in a way that other people will finally understand. And if you've felt that about something that a writer has written to feel that somebody else appreciated that too, makes you immediately feel a connection with that other person. So that's so true. Tell me about, cause you, you mentioned about where the idea stemmed from and you, you had seen or, or heard about a person that was going around visiting sort of people's houses as well. Cause that was another component of the, the novel that I really, really liked was going and visiting and sort of brightening these people's days like Max Dorothy, June, everyone's day, giving them the books they recommend. Tell me a little bit about that because that's sort of not only we've kind of talked about the connection that people feel within the bookshop, but that's sort of bringing the bookshop to them, particularly, I guess, for some people that maybe not as mobile uh, and able to go and, to, to such a great bookshop. What, what do you reckon is about that as well? Talk a little bit about that, Emma. I thought it was a lovely kind of way to talk about the value of people that is sometimes invisible. And I mm. guess older people can be invisible in our society and they're often some of the, you know, most experienced, best-read people you will find. And there's something about Kate where she's a loner and she doesn't really necessarily relate well to people of her own age unless they'll talk to her about books. Mm. Um, so it was something about, it says something about Kate that these are the people she connects with and feels comfortable with, um, are people that she can bridge the divide with by talking about books. And it, it really comes back to books as being able to bridge a divide between people, whether it's age or whether it's background. It's about, yeah, finding that joy when you can just go, I've read that too. Wasn't it great? So true. But, like, I feel that oftentimes Kate might feel that the bookshop is less than valued until kind of what happens at the climax there, again, without without spoilies, because you have a lot of people come in, and I, I would imagine this sort of stuff, and you, you would have no doubt experienced it with booksellers, 
people coming in wanting to wanting cash money for books and stuff like hard covers that just do not move, expecting large amounts of money for that. Uh, a teenager wanting to get uh, it's either sharpeners or erasers. I think it was sharpeners. I think it was best sharpeners being kind of surly and rude about that. Various other people complaining about the pricing and and all that sort of stuff. I feel, which is all I'm no doubt part and parcel and very typical of a day in a, in a bookseller's, uh, bookseller's life and secondhand bookshop. Um, but when it comes down to it, and again, I'm trying to tread around, I don't want to spoil you, but basically when the bookshop is threatened, I'll, I'll leave yep. it at that, the community rallies, I guess. And then it kind of reaffirms Kate with saying or feeling well, maybe it's in the darker times, uh, it shows that uh, just how much of a figurehead and how important uh, and how consideredly important the bookshop is, book thing is within the community at large, particularly when she posts the Facebook and all that. And I think she's also so surprised, not only with the outpouring of, of responses, but also with, um, with even some of the, the older uh, denizens kind of being very Facebook active and how engaged the community was within that sort of social media. So what do you reckon? It, it, it kind of showed Emma, I guess, that in the darkest hour, the bookshop is vital and considered vital and, and valuable to the community and the community kind of extends that as much. What do you reckon? I guess it's highlighting that there's um, this fundamental tension between um, different forces at work in mm. the world that we're living in. There's this there's the push, you know, towards the homogenisation of our city centres, which I do think to some extent is a shame. Um, and there's also this mass migration towards the screen. And, you know, I love a good movie or show as much as the next person, but there is this element of people um, not wanting to pay for a work of art that someone spent years to create, like a book, and feeling somehow offended that they, they're being asked to pay $30 for it. Um, you know, when, which I consider absurd <laughs> that people don't want to pay full price for a book. Um, and there's this expectation that a bookshop should always be there for you, but that you needn't support it with your wallet or that you needn't actually sit down in the evening and pick up a book, that it must mm. always be Netflix. And I think that, you know, and it's that, that that Kate is feeling in the start of the book, that, that drag towards the inevitable and that sadness that this seems to be the way society is going and is there any way that we can stop it. But I think that what happens in the book with there's a sudden upswell of support for her bookshop mm. has been demonstrated as well in our kind of the past couple of years with the way that COVID has hit our cities and bookshops have proved, indie bookshops particularly, have proved their worth and their connection to their communities in a way that gives me hope in the same way that Kate was given hope in the story because they proved that connection with community is not really something that a large business can necessarily do. You know, indie mm. bookshops, it was the same all over the country. They all went, you know what, we'll deliver locally. We'll shove books out of a slot in the door for you. We'll do this. We'll sell them online. You can ring us, get your recommendation. And they all pivoted again and again and so quickly and so willingly. I know multiple booksellers here in Perth and it will be the same over there. Multiple booksellers just drove around the city delivering books by hand in their own time for no money mm. um, just to help people. And that is how they prove their connection and their worth. 
And that is something that people suddenly were reminded that they valued and that that is why you're spending your money, that little extra bit of money to buy from an indie business. Um, you know, that has to pay for rent and they have to pay for staff and they're not Amazon. But um, that is what people were reminded suddenly during COVID when they were locked in their houses, that, that that is valuable. And I think that's a really beautiful and uplifting thing that we've seen in recent years is, is people remembering that local business is worth supporting. So spot on. And you're so true with like, I don't know, yeah, pre-pandemic, it was definitely very much a case or there was unlike like Kate reflects as well or echoes within within the novel is um this belief that uh the bookshop should the secondhand bookshop the indie, indie bookshop should be there but it should just be there without uh, any sort of contribution financial or otherwise by a person um and like the, the constantly logging on or the constant the nightly netflixing netflixing i don't know if that's a term but there we go not nightly netflixing uh as well as yeah just not really supporting and, and what you mentioned as well i mean in terms of you know, people kind of grumbling about having to pay $30 for something that someone is no doubt uh, as a long form writer myself, knowing just how much like yourself, uh, we'll probably get onto that is how much work goes into a novel, how much you have to batter away the demon of self doubt that's sitting on your shoulder with its forked tongue telling you how crap it is the entire time. And how you have to kind of ignore that and just push through. And then you get to the end end, and then you just start sending it out. And they're in, is the next layer of I'm trying, to, I'm trying to not put it as bleakly therein is the next layer of suffering because then that's when you start getting knockbacks some of them very brutal yeah. you know so so to so to support people and i guess you're calibrated similarly in that you know being a writer and appreciating all that you know you wouldn't you wouldn't think to um to pay thirty dollars or, or whatnot for a book i mean i certainly won't i spend much i spend money on much more dumb shit than that but I think you're right as well in terms of the pandemic and, and how that's given new sort of insight or perspective to, to these independent, particularly independent bookshops uh, and how different they are uh, in terms of being able to afford or offer a personal connection that larger change just can't. Because if, you, if you're getting stuff delivered to your door, that's all well and good. But um, if it's not delivered by a person or if it's certainly not delivered by a person in which you know and you know the bookshop in which they work at, I think that that sort of connection just can't possibly establish that because you're just there with you contributing financially to a huge behemoth of like, like you said, Amazon. And it's just not the same thing. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. The Um, vast majority of independent booksellers that I know, they're just not in it for the money. And you know that, that the big businesses are definitely only in it for the money. mm. Books are not special to them. That books are just one line of products in, many other lines and um yeah the some of those booksellers that i've mentioned and most of them i believe are doing long 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 hours and they don't make a lot of money and they are in it for the love and that's what we want in our society surely that's so true that's so true i mean like yeah even just even just australia in general um short of you know a very small handful of writers that have made it in terms of bestsellers that have subsequently, you know, broached overseas, um, crossed the gap overseas. Most people, most Australian writers don't do it for the, for the money, the fame, the fortune, either. Right. Well. Yeah. That whether you're a writer, whether you're writing the books or you're selling your books, nobody's getting rich. <laughs> That's so true. But like, 
yeah, again, it's, it's, it's all for this sheer love of it, as well as, you know, finding a community, I guess, where people are all, all loving it as well. But when, the richness when, is in the community and in what you learn. Richness and the connections. So spot on. <laughs> but when Book Fiend, the fate of Book Fiend is kind of in jeopardy or threatened and the community kind of bands together and there's people like Greta, what she does, trying to save the shop. I feel that I wanted you to talk a little bit about, and you've kind of mentioned it, but I wanted to talk a little bit more broadly about, I guess, broadly or its most basic form of people, relative strangers in some, in some regards, but just doing nice things for a fellow stranger in troubling times. So not everyone, I guess, that uh, when Book Fiend or when Kate announces that the Book Fiend is, is getting threatened, not everyone would know her personally, but everyone kind of, you know, contributes financially as well as, you know, I mean, there's also the story. Again, you're a journo, so maybe Erica was kind of like notes of you in there type thing. What do you think it is about, like, in these particular situations, though, given it's a business as well, like, that people just want to do something nice to preserve something? What is it about that, Emma? What were you trying to kind of capture there? I guess that there's a bit of... There is the, the factor of people wanting to do something nice, but I guess I was also wanting to highlight um, that there's a little ecosystem of public pressure and publicity that happens between social media, like social media and people on social media and media, like traditional media and companies. Mm. So in this case, you had... Kate posting as a business on social media, people in the public picking, picking up those pleas and getting on the cause, getting on the bandwagon, if you like. You have traditional media that picks that up and amplifies it and echoes it and sends it um, towards the larger business, which is the leasing agent. And then, you know, and I, I love the the element of people power that makes things happen when mm. that kind of pressure is amplified and picked up and directed well. And it's something that I see all the time as a journalist where people think that they can't make a difference. But in fact, that is the only way people make a difference, which is through the, the you know, the time old channels of petitions and fundraisers and public pressure and community papers and writing to politicians and writing to businesses and and applying pressure. And that is the way things happen. And I wanted to tell a story that's not really a fairy tale because it happens all the time. I see it all the time. And it's happened even um, to actual bookshops in our community that, you know, they were threatened to close and then there's an upswell of support and at the 11th hour something will happen because people put their money where their mouth was or they showed that they cared. Um, It happened to a a very well-known bookshop in Fremantle here called New Edition, where, you know, at the 11th hour, there was um, a big groundswell of community support for this old bookshop that was threatening to close. And then someone swooped in and bought it and it's now um, thriving, absolutely thriving in Fremantle and has a massive community following. So, and I see it not just with bookshops, but in my work as a journalist, I see it all the time that people power makes a difference. And so I wanted to tell that story as well. Well, that's so nice because that kind of like dovetailed onto my next question anyway, which was going to be about like this had a nice ending and it was all about, you know, people rallying together around a a beloved bookshop. And I was like, 
was that something in which that you think would happen in real life? And evidently it has because you've, you've experienced it time and time again. So I find that most reassuring and kind of uplifting to know that in these sort of circumstances with which you kind of covered there, that it does happen. And yeah, cause yeah, for me, and again, I feel for you as well, being a bookseller and having an affinity for, for reading and, and books that you no doubt love books um, and bookshops. There's something so saddening, particularly, I mean, any small business, you know, you don't want to see them close. Uh, but for something in particular with, with bookshops, because again, it kind of harkens back to what you sort of touched on with saying they uh, curate the the zeitgeist of the times. So that's so spot on. So to lose bookshops is kind of, you know, if we didn't have all bookshops and you kind of got this sort of Fahrenheit 451 carry on effect there with no books, that's a very scary kind of society and certainly one in which I don't want to live in. I don't know. What do you reckon? Yeah, there's something about the closure of a bookshop that just sort of grabs people by the heart in a, in a way that anything else doesn't affect them like that. But yeah, there's something that just grabs you by the guts about a bookshop closing. What do you reckon? Do you, reckon, do you think that reading has, has increased? I feel like I, I read some studies and they say that reading has kind of increased, at least incrementally in the past few years. What, what do you think? At least in your personal life, are you hearing a lot of people talking and there's all these sort of book groups and all that sort of stuff? What do you think? I don't know about in my personal life because I tend to talk to people who already like reading anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I w- I've definitely heard um, studies that studies being done suggest that people are reading more or at least they are buying more books. Mm. Whether that translates to reading more, I can only hope that it does. But, yeah, that, I believe that's pretty well quantified that reading is definitely picking up. Good, yeah. Which is good too. to hear. It is good to hear, isn't it? Particularly for uh, for the people that are chip chipping away in the old Australian scape of, of trying to get some Australian stories out there. Yeah. And what, what I always like to discuss at some point is uh, I mentioned this. I mentioned the demon of self doubt. I don't know what sort of a comparison you have you have there. I assume that you might have one, but there must have come a point. You're a journal. You've been a bookseller. You've been you know had a storied sort of career there, but there must've been a point, whether it was with writing the novel or some other point where you kind of uh, almost stopped, like you sort of maybe reached a a bit of a crossroads there and said, well, am I going to keep going or am I going to put down the pen and never pick it up again? Have you experienced that? Not everyone has, but have you experienced? And if so, like what, what was it that drove you to continue with the, uh, the old writing vocation? I guess I, I had many moments where I was like, why are you doing this? You're completely insane to be committed to this. Um, but I don't think I ever had a moment where I seriously considered not continuing mm. purely because I'm the kind of person who would be embarrassed to tell people I'm doing something and then not do it. Mm. So that's precisely why I told people because I, I didn't want to have to tell people that I, that I'd given up. So I, once I had decided that I was really going, going to push through and, and get a book published, then I told my close friends and I told my family so that I would, yeah, be accountable, I guess. Um, but certainly there were very dark times where I 
was told just how much more work would be required and <laughs> there's some long dark long dark nights of the soul in there for sure <laughs> it took five years to get that book published between sitting down to write the first few words and publication day so i like <clears throat> i like in the acknowledgements that you you thank Stu, your husband uh who has been the person that's read all the drafts given lots of advice given lots of feedback i think that's nice it's obvious that you've surrounding yourself with a good support network. And I feel that you've really got to do that in this old vocation of writing, because I think that um, it's, it's a weird balance, isn't it? Cause it's like such a solitary kind of isolating pursuit in, in the actual writing itself. You know, you don't, you don't just sit there with 10 mates around you uh, in the beer garden and write, you know, it's always like locking yourself away, but at the same time, you kind of need, outside of that period, you kind of need good support networks and people that uh, will read and give you feedback and all that sort of stuff. Cause otherwise I feel that it's, it's yeah, you, de you definitely need support. What do you reckon in terms of the balance of achieving the two? So important. And I guess I should um, take a moment here as well to point out that I'm somebody who while it takes a lot of personal fortitude to decide that you're going to start this and pursue it to the utmost, I am also someone who, you know, I come from a privileged white background where I had a privileged upbringing and I had a well-paid job and, you know, personal stability and security, which means that I'm one of the ranks of privileged people, you know, who can have, I guess, the ability and the resources to to do that and have a job to get up two hours before and write for. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm inherently coming from a place of privilege in being able to write. Um, having said that, I'm even more privileged to have support like I do in Stu because, and it's, you know, he has enabled me, especially after our son was born um, 18 months ago. He is like, for example, while I'm recording this right now, our house is like one room, it's tiny. So he's taken Augie to the playground and the park and the library and however many other places he has to take him so that I can have an, a quiet hour to further my career and talk about my writing. Um, that's just today's example. Um, but even more than practical assistance like that and, you know, discussing books with me and discussing storylines and reading drafts and things, I guess what you really need is for someone not to sit there and go, well, why don't you give up if it's so hard? You know, I've done pretty much nothing but bitch to him about how hard this stuff is for like six years. Yeah. And he's never once said, well, why don't you just stop? Yeah. You know, I think you need someone to believe in you like that and to go, you know what, no matter how miserable you're going to be about all this stuff, like 98% of the time, I'm going to encourage you and be proud of you anyway. Goodness gracious! I oh, yeah, you do, yeah. That's 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 some sound advice. Do not have <laughs> someone in your life that says why why don't you give up? Ouch! Of like, I mean, I've had random people, and maybe people you know they might mean well when they say that, but I think there would be a lot of people out there who just would go, you know what? You're not making any money off this. This yeah. is cutting into our family time. It does. It cuts into your family time. It makes you stressed. You know, you're trying to hold down two jobs at once and mm. I've been trying to hold down two jobs at once for six years now and I already work full-time. I've got a baby. Quite frankly, it's like a lot more stress than it is partying or, um, 
you know, celebration. And, but, you know, you're a writer, you get it. There's just something in you that needs to do it. And to have somebody that gets that and who will put up with all the discomfort and just support you unquestioningly is vital. So true. And yeah, I do, I do get it, Emma. I probably get it more than most because like I've been doing it, I'm 33 now, 34, 34 in August. And I've been doing it since I finished school when I was 18. And uh, I've written probably about 10, 10 books that will probably almost certainly never see the light of day of varying degrees of terribleness. Um, and I've kept going. I think it's like, whenever I talk to people about it, that's why I always like asking that question because you never get the same answer. And it's always interesting to hear about other people's journeys and stuff like that. But I feel that you just like, you just keep doing it no matter what, because we're particularly within Australia, the Australian scape, I mean, like, you can you could potentially be one of the the less than like one percent who, you know, write that book that uh, you know goes overseas, gets film rights bought, and you know, gets adapted into an American miniseries. You know, that's the dream. But I think most people are, um, don't get into it for that reason at all, and they accept that that's probably potentially not going to happen. And then they just bond over the actual sheer love of of writing. And then even if you like only have a small audience that reads your your work, it's still something that's just so cool and appealing about that, I guess. And that's what you sort of chase. It's not the, it's not the money because there's none. It's the, it's the, the writing itself. And then hopefully connecting with a, with an audience of people, however big, however small and, and forming that sort of connection. And I guess that kind of harkens back to what we've sort of talked about throughout, which is like this talk about connections and what a bookshop can offer, particularly an independent bookshop that, you know, larger chains or other businesses just can't do. Absolutely. You do it for that little spark that you feel when two ideas suddenly connect in your brain and there's a little sizzle that you feel just mentally and you go, ah, yes, this is how it all fits together and this is how it makes sense. And to have somebody say to you that they read your book and they felt something is just amazing and that's why you do it. Well, I read your book and I felt something and I was hoping, and what I'd really like to always end on usually as well, Emma, is to find out, you've, you've mentioned, you know, getting a good support network, et cetera, but I'd really like to know what advice you would give to aspiring writers that are perhaps tackling that first, first debut novel, much like yourself. I guess the butt in the chair advice is, is just good advice. Mm. Um, I know it's, probably hackneyed but um i love one you know ha- whatever your routine is have one that fits you whether it's writing in the morning before everyone gets up or writing in after everyone else goes to bed it's probably going to be one of those two mm. um and you have to know which one is you like i'm useless by four o'clock every afternoon and that's just a downward slide into bed at eight o'clock for me but so early morning is my time. Yeah. But, um, you know, know what period it is and make it part of your life. And, to, and you can have a break between drafts and stuff. You don't have to do that for the rest of your life. But while you're doing a draft or while you're doing an edit, you have to do that every day or three days a week or whatever you've decided to do. And then just be prepared for 100 million setbacks and don't think of that each rejection as being... Um, 
oh, well, you know, the book is crap. Of course it's crap. You don't know how to write a book. Just rewrite it as you're told and just think that person didn't have to give me this feedback, but they have. And so if the feedback rings true to you, go and incorporate it, go away and do it. spend another three months. Don't put a timeline on it. It might take you five years, but mm. eventually if you keep learning and keep incorporating that feedback and keep sending it out to agents and keep sending it out to publishers and do your research, it's not about talent or creativity. It's about grunt work. Mm-hmm. And if you're prepared to do the work and make it your routine and just think of every rejection as, yes, I can spike that on my stepping stones of inevitably, if I get enough of these, it will happen. It's persistence. That's all it is. That's so, so good true. luck. That's so true. It is all about the grunt work. Um, I'm so glad that you persisted with it, Emma, and I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to finally talk to you today because fate has gotten <laughs> Thanks in the way. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a lovely chat. Oh, seriously, it's so lovely getting to talk to you. But, um, yeah, thanks so much, Emma. Thanks for joining the show. So, everyone, there you have it. That was me and Emma Young discussing uh, her book, The Last Bookshop. So, huge thanks to Emma Young for coming along the program and talking with me about The Last Bookshop. Uh it's always uh, a pleasure talking to writers, but it's a particular pleasure speaking to someone that obviously loves writing uh, and reading and books as much as I do. Uh, and yeah, uh, go out and get a copy of The Last Bookshop because you'll get a big kick, I certainly did, out of reading all these various titles uh, and particular a couple of my favourite writers like James, James Elroy and Clive Barker was just delight to see mentioned in there along with the wealth of others. Uh, so yeah, huge thanks to Emmy Young for discussing with me her book, The Last Bookshop. Huge thanks to you as well, uh, dear listener, for sticking with me, uh, journeying into 2022, soaring into 2022, I should say. Uh, stick around, give a cheeky follow uh, on Spotify if you haven't already to listen uh, to any and all upcoming episodes of the show in the interim to satisfy, to slake your first for the Right Way podcast. Be sure to go back and listen to all the uh, other episodes of the show from uh, going back now to late 2020, right through to the beginning of 2022. Many uh, episode to come up uh, for you as well. Already getting fully booked up until uh, May, June time. So... Yeah, um, lots of cool people to speak to. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode, everyone out there. Stay safe, go and get your booster because uh, of that um, son of Omnicron or whatever that's rambling around and uh, we won't let him get his uh, slimy tentacles onto us. But in the interim, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Everyone have a lovely day.